Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Today, I'm joined by Brundy Brody to discuss calcium ATPase, how she came across it, her journey with it, all the research and knowledge that she's found by digging into it, what she's doing now, and so much more. This little-known enzyme plays a key role in your overall cellular health and overall health of you as a person, and yet we hear almost nothing about it. So I'm really excited to shine light on this topic that isn't really talked about much. Before we get to this episode, here's a quick word for one of our sponsors. Brundy, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So what made you interested in calcium, calcium ATPase? Why did you end up devoting 12 years to researching what it is, what it does, and writing a book about it? Well, my initial interest in calcium ATPase, which I'll explain more later in the podcast, and my the initial uh, push for it was my son, Canute, who had a lot of health issues. Um, and then once I began to understand its importance for him, I began to suddenly see, not suddenly, over time, I began to become overwhelmed by the fact that it was important for everybody. So I decided to write a book about it. What health issues was your son facing? So when the first day he was born, he was put in the ICU and um, was there for a week and they couldn't really figure out because he had stopped breathing. Um, so basically they did all the different tests and the only thing they found that they could send me home with was that he had sleep apnea, which means that he would stop breathing when he was sleeping. So he had to wear the monitor 24 seven. So that was kind of the starting point. Um, as he grew, he began to develop swallowing issues and um, eyelid droop and just kind of neuromuscular floppiness. Um, and then from there, I went to asthma, to different allergic reactions, um, just, just, just a lot of different symptoms. Um, but one that was kind of the easiest for me to, to notice was the muscle function. So he was tested for myasthenia gravis and a number of other different traditional muscle issues and and they came back negative, but I knew something was happening with this muscle. So I began to look into muscles and found that calcium played a crucial role in muscle function because the rise in calcium leads to muscle contraction and, and it needed to be lowered for muscle relaxation. So I kind of dug deep into muscle function and that's when I came across calcium ATPase. So I didn't really have anything particular to do with that, but that was kind of in the background. Meantime, I began to notice there were certain things that seemed to make his symptoms worse, such as food dyes, food additives, environmental exposure. You know, I had had the floors, um, the rooms painted, the floors done, you know, full steam ahead with everything, um, you know, fed in formula because I, I was just at that time, 20 years ago, we just really weren't as aware of all these things. But what I began to notice is that when he had these particular items, his symptoms would get worse. So I was like, okay, but why? And just through a, a kind of a long search on PubMed, what I found was all the things that made his symptoms worse, such as BHA, BHT, which are um, preservatives, different food dyes, um, pesticides, different things. They all have one thing in common, which is they all inhibited this enzyme, calcium ATPase. And by reducing his exposure to these things, it didn't cure him, but what it did do is it reversed, it helped reduce the severity of symptoms 
And kind of what I, the conclusion I came to is, I don't know exactly why, why this is, but for whatever reason, he's vulnerable to small changes in this enzyme, um, which manifests itself in a wide range of symptoms. Um, so then from there, I mean, there's like 25,000 journal articles on calcium ATPase and different roles of plays in health and disease. But, 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 but the net net is I really could see a big picture uh, overview that calcium ATPase is important in your health and people should be aware of ways to optimize your levels. Definitely. So your son had sleep apnea, he had asthma, he had all these different kind of unique signs and symptoms that were you traced back right to the function of this enzyme. And one of the things that really jumped out to me was that this was all something that you did. It seems like modern medicine didn't really have an answer for you. No, they didn't. And of course, as a mother, that was just extremely frustrating. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, I just couldn't just sit there and not do anything. And just the traditional things like allergy testing, you know, like I said, the muscle diseases, you could treat the asthma. There just was no, there was just nothing that changed the situation. And I was with him 24 seven and it was just really hard to see him suffering. So that's, you know, I just was looking for, looking for something that could help. Right. That's the worst possible thing is when you're stuck in a tough situation and you don't have any information, no one has an answer for you. And it's especially frustrating when one, when it's personal, but two, when you're seeking out, you know, the best doctors, the top medical advice, and they still don't understand what's going on. And to your credit, you found it to be this calcium ATPase enzyme, which that's not out of the, what do I want to say? That's not something that's, you know, unheard of, so to speak. You mentioned that there's thousands and thousands of articles published about it in PubMed. This is something that is essential to function of all skeletal muscle in the body. So you would think that someone with, you know, literally a decade of education would have, you know, that thought would have crossed their mind at some point. No, it's, it's not, you know, um, I've had a number of doctors who've read my book say it just wasn't covered. <laughs> it just wasn't covered very well. I mean, it was just, they vaguely remember hearing about it, but, but in all fairness, it's just the way information spreads. It starts with the research and then it trickles down. So th there was no real, they wouldn't have been exposed to it or been, there's no way they would have kind of come up with a possibility on their own. Right. So what's your son's current state of health now? You said that he's, he's great. He's 21. He just turned 21, believe it or not. And, um, you know, he's, he's never going to be the best athlete, you know, but he's physically healthy and strong. He's a junior at Georgia tech and mechanical engineering. So he's very bright, works very hard, but he still has to be cognizant of his exposure to these different things. Because when he, you know, goes on, a, goes off with his friends for a weekend and really eats a lot of this junk, you know, for a week or so, he's, you know, just not good and it affects his schoolwork and so forth. So he, you know, it's, it's a lifelong thing, but, um, but thank goodness we, we have an idea of what's going on. Right. And it's amazing, as you said before, how many of these hidden chemicals and hidden uh, harmful additives find their way into foods. Uh, we recently did a podcast with Tim James all about the hidden chemicals that find their way into food. 
from polyethylene glycol, which comes from petroleum, to uh, glyphosate, which for those listening, you might've heard of the Roundup uh, lawsuit against uh, Roundup because of glyphosate. And many people don't realize that glyphosate is sprayed on many crops before harvesting to keep insects and other unwanted things off of them, which, you know, it's great. We don't want bugs in our food, but at the same time, do we really want to be ingesting something that has such a detrimental effect on our health every single day? Right. I mean, it's just amazing. Just as a side note, glycophosphate um, triggers an increase in intercellular calcium, which causes, which makes it even more important that you have uh, calcium is working properly, but yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. And, you know, the, like you said, they serve a purpose, but, but the net net is we're getting them from so many different angles and, you know, it just, it, oh, they accumulate, they add up. So therefore, you know, every incremental uh, change you can make is meaningful, even though it may just be one particular change is still as part of the big package of things. It definitely is. Now, we've talked about calcium ATPase a few times here, and I'm sure that there's some people who are you know, frantically Googling right now, like, what is this thing? So what, what is calcium ATPase, and where do we find it in the body? Okay, so calcium ATPase has, is an enzyme, and it has one job, which is to regulate the calcium levels within your cells. And the reason why that's important is the rise and fall of calcium is what controls cell functions, it's like a traffic signal. When the calcium level goes up, it's a green light. To go down, it's a red light. And calcium ATPase is what enables that to occur. And it does this by pumping calcium from the cytoplasm of the cell into storage vesicles within the cell. And so it pumps calcium into these storage vesicles, which does two things. It lowers the calcium levels back down to an optimal level, and it also, uh, provides calcium for the storage vesicles are called the endoplasmic reticulum. And it's, it's too complicated to go into, but it's very important for the endoplasmic reticulum to have adequate calcium levels because that is, is important for a lot of other different issues. But the main thing is if the traffic signals within a city are not working properly, you can imagine it causes all different kinds of mayhem. Well, that's what happens in the body when you have uh, reduced levels of calcium ATPase, it just can cause a lot of different problems. Right, and that calcium ATPase comes in, uh, I'll say two different flavors. I believe it's uh, plasma membrane ATPase and sarcoendoplasmic reticulum ATPase. Yeah, so those are different. So so the net-net is the body has a couple different mechanisms for controlling calcium levels within the cell. One is the calcium sarcoendoplasmic calcium ATPase, which is what my book focuses on. Mm-hmm. Another one is a plasma membrane calcium ATPase. And the difference between that and the sarcoendoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase is it pumps calcium outside of the cell. So rather than pumping it into the storage vesicles, it pumps it to the, to the outside of the cell. But, but calcium ATPase tends to play a much larger role in this calcium regulation. There's also the mitochondria take up calcium when there's an excess level as well as there's something called the sodium calcium exchanger, which takes calcium out and brings sodium in. So there's a number of different mechanisms for calcium control. I kind of limit it to sarcoendoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase just because it's so fundamental and also it can be kind of confusing for someone just learning about it. But calcium regulation, 
you know, is, is, is complicated. It definitely is. And you can really go off the deep end when you start to get into some of these different right. mechanisms, right? right? Mitochondrial dysfunction, sodium calcium exchangers. There's a lot of different terminology that can get thrown around that, you know, someone who's looked into it for a decade or so will understand. But if you really want to uh, achieve what I'll call mastery or teach someone something, then you would explain it in a way that they would understand. So I think it's uh, crucial to take those complex uh, ideas or complex terms and really simplify them in a way that people understand. And I love your analogy that you make about a uh, traffic cop and a traffic backup in a city, right? If you don't have the proper functioning of calcium exchange, things just tend to back up and slow down. And it has a ripple effect that carries into uh, so much more than uh, what you would initially expect. So why then would it be crucial for optimal physiological function? You said it kind of plays a role in the mitochondria, it kind of plays a role in skeletal muscle. Is there anything else that it does or what, what kind of uh, impact would that have on someone on a daily basis? Sure, so, so the net-net is when calcium levels remain elevated for too long, it can cause a lot of different problems. And let me just kind of give, give you some examples. One is an increased inflammatory state. And so what happens is with mast cells, which is, is what is one of the main problems in inflammation or the, one of the main causes of inflammation is something called mast cell degranulation, where the mast cells release leukotriene and histamine and different inflammatory markers. Well, what they found is just simply applying a calcium H-base inhibitor triggers mast cell degranulation just in and of itself. And that's because with this elevated calcium levels that keeps triggering mast cell degranulation. But what's also even more interesting to me is that when you pair a calcium ATPase inhibitor with an allergen, it magnifies the allergic response. So by having reduced calcium ATPase, it just kind of sets you up to be closer to having that excess calcium within the mast cells that just makes you just in general more, your inflammatory response is magnified and also can just kind of trigger low levels of inflammation just uh, ongoing. Uh, another example is muscle function. So for example, with um, diseases such as Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the primary cause is the, is the protein, the dystrophin, but the net-net downstream, there's a reduced level an excess level of calcium within the cells and a reduced level of calcium ATPase. So that's kind of an extreme form of seeing how muscles can degenerate um, when they have excess calcium, but just on a, on a normal person's basis, when you exercise um, and you're do, doing your, your contraction and relaxation, you need that calcium ATPase to enable the muscle to function properly um, so, you know, to the extent you have reduced levels, that's gonna affect your just muscle performance in everyday life. Um, another example is metabolism because calcium ATPase <clears throat> represents about 15% of metabolic burn in your muscles, I mean, in, yeah, in your skeletal muscle. So it's crucial to your metabolic rate. And what they found is people with obesity have reduced levels of this enzyme as well as di diabetics. Um, and, and just as a side note, um, this company that I'm working with 
they have a compound that stimulates calcium ATPase and a number of different researchers have found that by using this compound which stimulates calcium ATPase, um, metabolism, metabolism goes up. So, so weight and diabetes, you know, is definitely, uh, calcium ATPase levels are definitely crucial in that as well as blood pressure, because as you can imagine, blood vessels are made of smooth muscle tissue. So when the muscles contract, that, that leads to higher blood pressure and they need to also be able to relax. And calcium ATPase is what enables that to happen through nitric, nitric oxide. So there's just um, in neurodevelopment, it is important in the brain from before you're born and neurodevelopment till when you're older, because uh, calcium levels within neurons control neuron function and excess calcium levels within the cells causes neuron death. So, so, so anyway, I could go on and on. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to stop, but I'm going to stop. No, for sure. There's so many different um, things that can manifest from dysfunction here and you hit all the big ones that come to mind for me. And I think from my standpoint, one of the biggest is the role it plays in the vasculature, as you said, with uh, blood pressure. So if you don't have optimal blood vessel dilation, that constriction, think of like a garden hose, the tighter you constrict it, the more pressure it has to exert in order to push water through. Uh, so that's essentially what happens to your blood vessels. And the issues with long-standing hypertension or the issues with decreased blood flow to a certain area, I mean, that's not hard to figure out. The less blood flow you have to tissues, the less uh, optimal they're going to function. The higher pressure your vasculature is under consistently, the quicker it's going to degrade and degenerate, right? If right. we were running our garden hose under a high pressure pressure washer all the time, then we would eventually develop holes in that garden hose, or it would have to develop some kind of thickening and protective layering on the inside um, to help protect itself from that occurring, uh, that breakdown occurring. And that's exactly what we see occurring in uh, blood vessels. So it's really interesting to me how this one enzyme literally can play a role in so many different chronic diseases. You mentioned obesity, diabetes, as we just mentioned with hypertension, hypertension is linked with all kinds of other issues such as stroke and other neural diseases. So it's crazy how this one simple thing can really throw the whole body out of whack. Right. And I think it's a great thing to zone in on one particular aspect as in terms of vascular tissue, but just, just to carry that a little bit further as a PhD student, you know, nitric oxide is what the body releases to dilate, dilate the arteries. And the way it does is by triggering uh, calcium ATPA. So yeah, I'm just <laughs> giving you a little bit more background, but what's also crucial to understand is that blood clotting, for example, is also affected by calcium ATPAs because the way you slow down the blood clotting and keep the blood level uh, at the right uh you know, you don't want to have over sticky platelets and calcium ATPase plays a role in preventing over sticky platelets. In addition to the heart muscle itself and heart failure, kind of a uh, universal finding is reduced calcium ATPase levels in the heart cardiac muscle. And, you know, one way to kind of see this in action is that by doing a gene transplant 
in calcium ATPase in the heart muscle, it reduces, it almost uh, turns around heart failure. So calcium ATPase is not just in the arteries and the smooth muscle, just throughout the whole system of the cardiac system, it's crucial to, to all those regulatory mechanisms. Definitely. That's an interesting point on uh, patients with heart failure as well. Uh, so doctors must regularly be checking this as a biomarker in certain kinds of patients then? No, they, they should be. So far, it's just been done. I think there's like three or 4,000 studies that just focus on uh, heart failure or cardiac issues with calcium ATPase. But right now, the only um, testing that's been done, it's kind of tricky to test in the heart, right? You have to, to, to do animal studies or, or look at hearts of deceased people or donor hearts. So there's not a way to actually directly measure the cardiac levels. And actually there is a way to measure uh, levels in your platelets, but it's not the test, which means you could have a blood test per se. The problem is um, that A, it's not available. And B, that's a snapshot of calcium ATPase levels in your platelets. And it's not so perfectly clear if that measures it how that, you know, how that shows that that's an accurate measure for car, for actually the muscle in the heart. So it, it's still in it, in its infancy. Um, you know, so, um, I mean, one kind of indirect measure is A1C is, um, inversely correlated with calcium ATPase levels. And the reason why is of the glycation, because glycation also affects the calcium ATPase protein. Um, but, but just like the A1C measures, blood sugar over time, you would need to come up with something like the A1C for the calcium ATPase protein to see, you know, this glycation, which would give you a better picture than just simply, you know, a one-time platelet measurement of calcium ATPase. But, but those things are yet to be developed. But one day, it's certainly a clear biomarker. Um, this should be part of your yearly or biannual blood test. Definitely. That's an interesting uh, note there on the A1C tie-in with calcium ATPase. I didn't know that before. Does calcium ATPase correlate at all with plasma calcium levels? So the amount of uh, calcium no, in the blood? No, it doesn't. And that's something that's, you know, kind of, it's tricky to understand when you're just learning about this. So the calcium levels within your bloodstream, um, the amount of calcium levels within your cell is very tightly regulated. So in the body, there's 2.2 pounds of calcium and only a teaspoon and a quarter is in your cells. So yes, if you take an overload of calcium supplements, your calcium levels will become elevated. And, and in the short run, it, some of it will run into the cells, and but that's pumped out quite quickly. Um, so they're kind of separate issues. Um, you know, I mean, high levels of calcium you know, hypocalcemia or hypercalcemia has, you know, a long, I mean, a lot of different effects, but, um, but it's not directly related to calcium ATPase. Interesting. Yeah, because when we first hear calcium and we talk about pathology, I'm sure someone's mind um, probably went to like a parathyroid, like a thyroid disorder, because right. hyperparathyroidism is um, essentially too much parathyroid hormone which led to increased calcium in the bloodstream. And that can cause some of the similar signs and symptoms that we talked about, like muscle weakness. Right. Uh, and hypoparathyroidism uh, would be low calcium in the blood, uh, which causes a lot of the neuromuscular and cardiac 
irritability things that we talked about before. Uh, so just because the symptoms are somewhat similar doesn't necessarily mean that they have the exact same mechanism. Well, they, they all have to do with calcium regulation, um, but so, you know, you, calcium ATPase plays a role in the sense of if it's overloaded with calcium by having, you know, that if there's excess calcium in the blood, it's going to flow into the cells just as the body's way of trying to balance it. Um, so, so yeah, they're all related to calcium regulation uh, and they each play a role, but calcium ATPase is kind of, it's important whether you have hypo, hyper, or normal calcium levels within the blood and cells, it, it needs to do its job. Definitely. So how can we optimize the functioning of the calcium ATPase enzyme from nutrition standpoint, lifestyle standpoint? What should people be doing or what shouldn't people be doing? Sure. So kind of like my kind of overall recommendations is number one, try to avoid as much as you can these chemicals and toxins that we're exposed to every day that have a negative impact on calcium ATPase. So what that means in, in reality is simply, you know, trying to avoid processed food with chemicals, et cetera, um, eating organic when possible because all the pesticides inhibit calcium ATPase. Don't use pesticide sprays in your house. Um, and so avoiding as many chemicals and toxins as you can, that's one part of it. The second part of it is, is nutrition. So probably the most important thing is to avoid high blood sugar, because what you have to appreciate is that calcium ATPase is a protein. And when you have high blood sugar, the sugar molecules attach themselves onto proteins and disable them, which is what happens in diabetes with hemoglobin. That's what, is, that's what A1C is measuring with the glycation of hemoglobin. But what happens when the calcium ATPase is glycated, it can't work. So avoiding high blood sugar is just really important. And I'm not saying you can't have birthday cake binge <laughs> or you know something like night out, but it just day in and day out, you wanna avoid high blood sugar because of this negative effect. Um, the other part of the nutrition is the great news is there's different compounds in foods some of them you have already heard of, um, like vitamin E, um, alpha lipoic acid, uh, lycopene, resveratrol. Um, there's also, you may not have heard as much of elegant acid, um, lutololin, but they're basically, all these things are basically found in a number of different fruits, vegetables, and nuts. And it's kind of like what we already know we should do. Berries are, are great. So our almonds, sunflower seeds, um, tomatoes, carrots, beets, asparagus, um, green leafy things. So it's just kind of all the things we know, right? That, for, for, that have been espoused for health reasons. But what, again, what I think is really helpful is to realize that all these things um, help optimize your calcium ATPase levels. And it's not kind of like I'm just saying that, they're actually, these compounds actually have been shown in studies to stimulate or help protect calcium ATPase from oxidation. So, you know, by reducing your levels of high blood sugar and by eating these nutrient rich foods, you know, that's just one way you can help, um, 
you know, not, not be destroying your calcium ATPase. And I kind of like to think of it as a bank account. So you have calcium ATPase and there's these things that are kind of withdrawals such as, you know, food additives, preservatives, exposure. And also interestingly enough, stress, the stress hormones reduce calcium ATPase. So those are kind of like the withdrawals where some deposits you can make are, you know, controlling your blood sugar, eating these foods, and then also exercise. So, um, Studies have shown that three different kinds of exercise have been found helpful in increasing the levels of calcium ATPase in skeletal muscles, and that includes strength training, aerobic, and high intensity. So that's, again, another way you can, you know, make some deposits. So what, what I encourage people is to try to think of it as everything's connected, but I think it's helpful to realize that all these have you know, we all know all these things, right? One thing is good for cancer. One thing is good for brain function, you know, eat, you know, eat X, Y, and Z for this and that. But I, I think it's helpful to have a framework of all these things affect calcium ATPase. So uh, it's just an overarching reason that it uh, connects all these different uh, healthy lifestyle choices. I love that banking analogy, how sometimes you're withdrawing and sometimes you're putting more in. And that kind of speaks to the balance piece quite a bit you know we're not saying that you have to give up your way of life entirely uh in order to live a healthy lifestyle right you know we birthday cake or i ate four christmas cookies about four or five days ago and i really enjoyed it and i have no shame and no regrets in doing it uh but it's a balance i didn't just you know wake up and throw my whole day away and then down cookies and all these other uh, not so healthy foods. I balanced it with exercise. I balanced it with healthy meals uh, at other times during the week. So I love the analogy you made again, uh, just about balance, uh, because that's what all of this comes down to. You can uh, enjoy your life while living a healthy lifestyle. Uh, and I think that's a point that people often uh, forget. Um, I also like how you brought up the importance of nutrient-rich foods uh, in general. So berries are one of my personal favorites, and the quality matters when it comes to these foods, as you mentioned. It's better to buy organic. Uh, I usually point people to the uh, clean 15 versus dirty dozen list. Uh, there's certain fruits and vegetables that you should try to always buy organic and certain ones that you can kind of get away with not buying organic. Uh, and that list really helps people kind of uh, see that for themselves and might help them save a few dollars at the grocery store. Uh, I also like to encourage wild uh, fruits such as wild blueberries whenever possible because they have uh, more potent antioxidants and different levels of vitamins and other uh, minerals and micronutrients that our body needs to function. Uh, but it's amazing what can happen to your overall health when you put these steps in place, right? Exercise, stress management, controlling your blood sugar, eating healthy. That's not just good for calcium ATPase exclusively. It's good for practically your entire body. Uh, this is just one of the mechanisms that it benefits. That's really awesome stuff that you shared. Right, yeah, and that's a great suggestion about the Environmental Workings Group, um, Dirty Dozen and Clean 15. So that's a great, and, and just kind of 
just so you know, um, just eating or an organic diet for one week lowers the pesticide residues almost to zero in the urines of, you know, of people. So, so it is, you know, it, it does actually matter the amount of pesticides you eat and you can get yourself back in balance relatively quickly by following the diet for a week, organic eating for a week. Um, in terms of blueberries, yes, the wild blueberries are, are better. And it's just amazing some of the studies they've done, even with children drinking, having a wild blueberry extract for a week improves their uh, cognitive function. So wild blueberries are awesome. Um, I never really appreciated the difference between blueberries and wild blueberries until I started looking into it, but that's a great point. And they're hard to find uh, just in the produce section, but they're almost always in the at Whole Foods or, or probably Trader Joe's. There's usually in the frozen foods, which uh, you can toss into a smoothie. Um, just something else I would say is to the extent you can add these things in, you know, as a regular part of your day, like I think it's helpful to have like a, some kind of morning routine. I always include berries. So, you know, it can be strawberries, blackberries, but have it like, okay, every morning I have something with berries in it. And then also include nuts for maybe one of your snacks or on a salad, like the almonds and sunflower seeds. So I think to the extent that you can kind of have these things locked in to your average day, you know, that you consistently consume, um, I think that's helpful. And it's just, you're just, you're just feeding yourself you're feeding your body nutrients that are important and you don't have to think about it. You just, every morning you have berries of some kind or, you know, whatever. But I think finding those places you can, that, that seem right to you, that you can plug these healthy foods in on a daily basis. I think it uh, kind of takes the thinking, thinking about it every day out of it. And it kind of guarantees that you're having enough to make a difference. Right. The importance of developing a routine. It's significantly easier to do the same thing consistently day in and day out, as opposed to doing something one day and something different the next and so on and so on. Uh, so I've shared my own morning routine in the past, but I wake up and I start by drinking a full water bottle of water. Uh, I try to get either filtered water or spring water or something a little bit more than just tap water uh, for obvious reasons. There's a lot of hidden things that may be in your tap water, depending on where you live uh, and the source of your water. Uh, and then I move around and exercise, get my workout in, and I start the day on that positive note. Uh, and that's something I do every single day. It's not like a question of, hey, you know, what am I going to do this morning? It's I wake up, I drink water, and then I work out. So the three W's, I like to call it. And that's something that can be adjusted for anyone's schedule, right? It doesn't take that long to drink, you know, a glass of water or something similar. It doesn't take that long to work out. You know, no one's asking you to spend two or three hours in the gym here. You can get pretty good results in 20 to 30 minutes uh, or sometimes even less. And from there, as you mentioned, having a consistent uh, nutrition regimen for someone like me and some of the people who listen, I know we're into things like intermittent fasting, which I'd be curious, uh, side note, to see if that has any impact on calcium ATPase function because intermittent fasting is very good at promoting autophagy and regulating blood glucose levels. Um, but for some people, fasting won't work and you need to start your day with breakfast or some kind of food substance and having something 
again, consistent and regimented, like, hey, today I'm going to wake up and I'm going to have a bowl of, you know, grass-fed organic uh, yogurt from a company like Tremona um, and then put some wild blueberries in it and a couple different kinds of nuts in it and maybe some chia seeds and that's your breakfast every day or even throw some raw honey in there. Like that's the kind of thing that done consistently over time will have such amazing effects on your overall health. And you can really customize that so you don't get bored or tired of it. So maybe you change up the style of your workouts. Maybe you change up the foods uh, with the season. That's something that I love to do is try and eat seasonally. So in the fall, maybe you incorporate more pumpkin and apple type things. Maybe in the summer, you incorporate more um, watermelon and berries and other fruits and vegetables that are in season. Uh, and that way you're always consuming fresh uh, fruits and vegetables and it's always different. You're never on the same thing for a prolonged period of time. Uh, and those are just tips that I've found helpful for myself and with working with people in the past. And I'm sure you've probably uh, recommended similar things yourself. Yeah, I love that. I love uh, two parts of that. One is just the variety that you can have. Number two is that you really have to look at yourself as an individual. Like for some people, intermittent fasting doesn't work. Okay, you really have to look at your own response. And for some people, certain fruits, you know, seem to make them feel worse and, and whatever. You have to really respect and pay attention to your own body. Um, in terms of intermittent fasting and calcium ATA, so of course, I've been interested in that, right? Um, the only thing I really found is that it doesn't change the level, but it changes the timing of the level. So intermittent fasting can increase the levels of calcium ATPA during the day. Uh, but, but apart from that, you know, intermittent fasting has a positive effect on mitochondrial health. So many things that if the mitochondria aren't working properly, there's not enough ATP, right, for the pump to pump to work. So there's, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more trickle down effects of intermittent fasting uh, that could benefit calcium ATPs, but I don't, there's not a lot of studies done on it. Well, maybe there will be some uh, new ones coming out soon <laughs> yes. after uh, this podcast is released or something. Um, I'm sure that someone like you could find a way to make that happen based on uh, what you told me about yourself before. Uh, yeah, so, I'm, I'm really, yeah. And I mean, what's really exciting is just now, and I know there's, it's better to take care of things, uh, eating, eating and behavior wise, but what's really exciting is the scientific community you know, including the drug companies are beginning to realize how important calcium ATPase is as a target. So there's just a lot going on in the calcium ATPase world in terms of research and health. Um, and it's, you know, it's all very exciting. Definitely. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about calcium ATPase or you and your family's personal health journey? Um, you know, my whole goal in all of this is just to kind of introduce a new concept about intercellular calcium and it's important to health. So, you know, hopefully just by even listening to this, it, it plants a seed in your mind and it's just, um, you know, there are things you can do that can help maintain healthy levels of calcium within your cells, which of course, in particular, by uh, optimizing your levels of calcium ATP. So, so I, I just really hope people will be open-minded just to begin to understand that's a part of their health they should pay attention to. And um, in terms of just learning more about it, 
my website, which is Brundy Brody, that's B-R-U-N-D-E-B-R-O-A-D-Y.com. It gives you an overview of calcium ATPs, but most importantly, and what I'm really kind of the most excited about is my newsletters, which have a lot of practical information that you can use right away. So if, if you're interested in learning more about calcium ATPase, I think that's a great place to start my website in the newsletters. Um, I did write a book called The Calcium Connection, which you know kind of goes into more detail about the different disease states and reduced levels of calcium ATPase. So if you're kind of, you know, a uh, someone who's really interested in, uh, you know, the deeper, deeper level discussion, and then it also goes into the, and, and detailed things that toxins and also in the nutritional aspects that um, can help your calcium ATPase. So, you know, the book is, is a great resource, but you know, if you're not ready for that, check out my website, my newsletter, sign up for them. And, you know, I think that you'll get a lot of uh, benefit from just that. Definitely. You mentioned the book, you wrote that book with uh, Dr. Russell Dahl. Is that correct? Yes. Well, he's, yeah. So he was my, um, you know, kind of my, my, uh, advisor along the way. Um, he's somebody that is a preeminent researcher in regards to, to sarcoendoplasmic calcium ATPase. And, um, I work with him with a, in a biotech company, um, which we develop compounds that stimulate calcium ATPase. And for example, the Alzheimer's foundation, put in $2 million because we've had animal studies that show benefit in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, the Diabetes Foundation is interested in our diabetic compound. Uh, we have a partnership with Harvard, um, Northwestern, um, Dallas, University of Texas, Southwestern in Dallas. Um, we have just a wide range of academic institutions that we're partnering, partnering with so Dr. Dahl really appreciates the importance of calcium ATPase. So he was my advisor. We're, we're partners in this biotech company. And, um, you know, but, but a lot of this was, was just initially research that I pulled together on my own. And, and you know, again, my, my book is really, you know, watered down, you know, um, but, uh, but underlying it all is really a lot of research. So, um, you know. Right. You can go off the deep end if you want, but if you just want the simple and slightly easier to understand version uh, that we kind of started to uh, set the stage for today, uh, you can check out that book and it's available on Amazon and all these other different booksellers online. I'll be linking to uh, Brundy's website, the book, and some other things in the show notes below. So if you didn't catch uh, when we went over it, you can just click below. Uh, Brundy, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy hearing it. Additionally, if you want to help support this podcast and keep future episodes going, please check out our links below where you can support us directly or through engaging in any of our affiliate marketing links. Last, please make sure you check us out on social media at Braun Body and leave a five-star review, especially if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify.